What led the New Zealand Society of Authors to battle with the government for over three years? And why does Sweden lead the world in freedom of speech? I'm Karen Hay, and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast, where we dive deep into the archives to hear New Zealand authors tell their story of living as a writer in Aotearoa. Through his writing, radio and television projects, Gordon McLaughlin is known for his wit, cultural criticism and works of New Zealand history. He also played a key role in securing authors' rights, advocating as president of the New Zealand Society of Authors for Kiwi Writers during the economic reforms of the early 1990s, and for freedom of speech for writers worldwide through pen. Though, as he told Michael King, he wasn't very impressed with the society when he first joined. Well, I joined the society in 19... I think it was about 1977 or 78 after I'd had The Passionless People was published and a, a farming book I did, I think. And uh, I used to go to the meetings regularly, but they were very stuffy and... and uh, um, they were talking about Auckland branch. Yes, I'm yeah. talking about the Auckland branch. And they were dominated almost entirely by Keith Sinclair, Carl, um, and a few other people at that time, that generation. And... Um, they, they were all people who deserved admiration um, and, you know, were people of substance and, and performance and uh, ability. Uh, but they, I found it very boring and, uh, and they dominated the whole thing and, and they didn't want to shed any kind of uh, influence at all. So after a few years of going to occasionally, um, I sort of fell away and I kept an interest and I remained a member during that whole period and went to the to very, very odd meetings, I think an annual meeting here and an annual meeting there, and that was basically it, until... Do, do you think, just yes. following up on that, do you think that was partly because none of those guys were people who actually depended on writing for an income? It didn't have a sort of trade union function in that context, did it? No, it didn't. And in fact, it was, uh, it was what, uh, it was like a kind of writer's club with no real purpose at all, I felt. I mean, I don't think they were very, really interested in freedom of expression, um, and they didn't look beyond New Zealand anyway, where freedom of expression has never been a major problem. It was kind of a gentleman writers' club. You know, they they wore uh, some of them wore jackets with leather patches on the elbows, and <laughs> it was uh, it was a gentleman writers' club. And so after a while, once you knew the people there and you heard all the conversations, it, it lost its glamour. Do you, do you remember Tim Shabbat's comment in Bullshit and Jelly Beans? My cousin Morris is a writer. You can tell he's a writer because he's got leather patches on his elbows and smokes a pipe. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I was a bit like that, yes. So I sort of drifted away and kept a, re a reasonably tenuous sort of relationship with it until 19... I think 1990... I can't even remember when I was actually president. Actually. It was 1993, I think, when John Craner and Tessa Duda rang me up and said that they were interested in somebody who had uh, um, political... Um, experience if you like and I'd had quite a lot of experience with with businesses around town here um, advising them on um, on tactics if you like and on, on um, b uh, political possibilities so uh, we went and had a drink in the uh, in the Novotel at the bottom of Queen Street and and they asked me if I'd be interested in being nominated as president for the NZSA and I said I thought that was a bit of a nerve actually because I hadn't even been a 
on the executive of the Auckland branch at that time. Uh, and John Craner was, I think, at that time president, uh, chairman of the Auckland branch. So I went away and thought about it, and I'm not, as you know, a joiner. I'm not the sort of person that joins organisations as a rule. In fact, I think that the organisation, the only organisation I've belonged to since 1976 when I joined the NZSA is the and Onions Club, which I quite enjoyed. And, and I left that because they had some excess money and they wanted to buy prams for unmarried mothers. Uh, and I said, oh, this is an organisation in decline, I need to leave. <coughs> so... So I was. It was with some. I went home and I thought it was something. No, I mean that's not me. I don't. I'm not an organisational a joiner or an organisational person. And I thought about it. And I thought, well, well, maybe it would be an interesting thing to do, and it would be something I could do for. I've always been, as you know, deeply interested in New Zealand literature, and uh, writing in all its forms. And I thought, well, maybe it's something I could do. Um, and I had a little bit more time then available to myself, and um, so I rang them up the next day and said yes. And with, with unseemly haste, I think, the whole thing was sort of um, stamped and I was made chairman of the NZSA, uh, president of the NZSA. And at that time, there were two things happening. The Arts Council, the new Arts Council legislation had just happened and the copyright bill was um, before the House, I think it was at that time. It was part, So it must have been 1994. So it was really quite a busy, a busy time. I mean, there were lots of things happening that were affecting writers. And the one thing that that uh, that did uh, uh, occupy my time immediately, the two things that occupied my time immediately, or my attention immediately, were making sure that authors had some kind of ownership of the copyright licensing limited, which had been set up by the publishers. And the other thing was trying to get um, some sense into Creative New Zealand, which had been taken over by. Um, uh, Claudia Scott, who was a professor of public policy at uh, Wellington University, Victoria University, and who had decided that she would adopt the Roger Douglas um, um, attitude of no lobbying, no vested interest. Now, how you could run an arts council without dealing with vested interests, I don't know, and I'm sure she didn't either. And I found out that even before the act had been passed, that Doug Graham had told her she would be getting this job and she had been going round the traps at the, at the Arts Council looking at it and decided that the whole organisation had been captured by artists and that she was going to put an immediate stop to that. So when she, uh, the Act was finally passed and the organisation was set up and she was put in position, she then stopped anybody in the Arts Council virtually having anything to do with any organisations or acting artists or, or active artists. So he had the extraordinary position where she was sitting uh, as chair of the trust um, and uh, she was dispensing money or getting the organisation to dispense money to people with whom she'd had never had any uh, association whatsoever. She didn't know, she had no knowledge, limited knowledge of their work. Um, and so it was immediately, uh, the Arts Council was a castle that we had to lay siege to and which I proceeded to do. One of the difficulties I found straight away was with the National Council was that I believed that we should um, take a position, assault, assault the organisation, that we should go for it because it was palpably absurd what was happening. I looked around the National Council one day, and the members of Orient forgive me for this, and I saw immediately the fear in their eyes of these, these potential supplicants uh, were thinking, oh my God, 
what chance have I ever got of getting a grant again if I go along <laughs> with this guy, you see? And I'm sitting there never having applied for a grant and never intending to apply for a grant and looking at the fear deeply in their eyes and thinking, oh my God, I'm on my own here. Um, that's not quite true. Some of them, uh, some members were sort of, uh, you know, took a deep breath and thought, you're right. Um, other members, um, uh, one of them was actually a friend of uh, Claudia Scott's. And uh, so it was a very divisive atmosphere for a little while. It didn't last too long. Um, but I, uh, I attacked them quite seriously, attacked quite seriously. I mean, I had meetings with her and I had, the, the major problem was, I had huge problems understanding it, how a person could hold a, a position as a professor of public policy at Victoria University and be almost unintelligible in conversation, I could never, never been able to figure out. Uh, I had one meeting with her and, and it was incredible. I talked to her for an hour and I didn't know what either of us were talking about um, because it was so bizarre. And I remember walking out of the, of the uh, Arts Council onto Lambton Quay and I ran into Janet Davidson you know, the, who I've known for years and years, she was now then in Wellington, the, the archaeologist. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And I said, I've just had the most extraordinary experience, Janet. I said, I've spent an hour with a public, with a public servant, a professor of, uh, from Victoria University. I didn't know what either of us were talking about. And she said, welcome to Wellington. <laughs> <laughs> so I went into a coffee shop down there with a, with a pencil and a pad, which I always carry, and I spent the next half hour writing down what I could remember of what she said, this uh, gobbledygook. And I, uh, then later I published an article, and I wrote an article for Metro based on this. Um, now, Claudia had the difficult problem of, uh, of trying to go round me then. She didn't want to have anything to do with me. And to their great credit, the Society of Authors wouldn't let her do that. Uh, and then she put up this barrier, that, or the organisation put up this barrier, um, where, uh, it, uh, according to which you, you applied uh, for a grant, <coughs> there was no peer group, um, and uh, the, so they, they, they gave these grants out without any really sound knowledge of what was happening. And gradually, they brought in peer group readers, but they made them secret. They weren't allowed to reveal their names. Uh, which, you know, is, is an extraordinary thing to happen in New Zealand. But to cut a long story short, we gradually wore them down. It took longer than me. Tessa took over after me, and gradually they wore them down until now it is a reasonably accessible organisation. I think that... Can, oh, can I just ask you, yeah. where do you think... This, by the way, uh, is not going to be uh, accessible to anybody without your specific permission. So it's been done for the record rather than for yeah. current journalism or anything of that yeah. sort. But where do you think Rosemary Wildblood fitted in with all that? She obviously wasn't coping with the situation. I felt sorry for Rosemary because her position was that she was an employee of Creative New Zealand. She, she um, tried to... She, she was caught in the position of being reasonably loyal to writers, but she was defending her job. I mean, she, she, her employers. I mean, she had the... She, but she did go along with it. She did agree to, a, to she did go along to, to, to some extent. She argued with me several times about this, and she said that it was captured by, the old organisation was captured by, um, uh, by artists and authors. And I said, well, that's just a catchphrase. What does that mean? You know, that's just Claudia speak for a situ defining a situation and in the abstract what actually happened. Uh, and anyway, another potential word is participation. You yes. Know, I yes. So, uh, you know, we had that she, she was in a difficult position. I don't malign uh, Rosemary too much, but I found her basically unhelpful 
for the reasons that she was an employee. But um, I also had a, a, a Brian Stevenson, who was the chairman. I also had a lot of difficulty with Brian, and um, in the end, we were. I, I always maintained that he would have been an, a really nice man to live next door to. But as a as an administrator of an organisation, he knew nothing about. It. I mean, he'd been associated with the Symphony Orchestra in, in, in the Philharmonia in Auckland here, and uh, he'd, he was a financial a finance man. And um, so, he, in my opinion, he was very ill-equipped for the job. Um, had no real knowledge of the arts or what he was doing. He did his best, but it was, in my opinion, quite inadequate. So we had, so I had this uh, running battle for three years, really. Um, I quite enjoyed it, but I felt it was a shame. I think the ultimate absurdity of that kind of system, of trying to operate without what you might call precious groups or interest groups, is, is illustrated by the huge blunder that Claudia, I don't suppose she could take all the blame, but the Arts uh, Committee made with publishers, and that's this. They decided, apparently, that the publishers, uh, and I think in that first year, the end of the first year, the publishers applied for grants, and Claudia and whoever else said, why should publishers get grants? I mean, they are commercial organisations, so they stopped publishers' grants. Now, one phone call to a, quote, interested, an interest group could have explained to her that there's not much point in funding people right. to be writing all over New Zealand right. if they can't get published. So gradually they had to, the, you know, when the, the common sense of that was pointed out to them over a period of time, they, it, it came back to, um, to common sense and they gradually saved face by holding out for a little while and then restored the publisher's grant. And that's an example of having to learn, taking two years to learn something that's self-evident to anybody that's been involved in the industry. Yeah. So it was a really interesting time for me, and uh, it was a, a time when I, it was the sort of thing I quite enjoy because um, nobody got deep, I didn't, never got deeply emotional about it, and I enjoyed the challenge of seeing something happening that was so bizarre in a modern society that you, w and, and from a person who was teaching public policy at a university, making these stupendous mistakes because... It was a satirist dream. Was it? <coughs> it was a satirist dream. Well, 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 it was, and it was a classic example to me. It was an illustration of all the things I'd long suspected. In that, <coughs> when people <coughs> become slaves of an ideology, they lose all sense of day-to-day -day, uh, of the day-to-day -day conduct of affairs. They and the common sense of of uh, you know human affairs, they just uh, become hedged in by this kind of ideological approach. After that, the thing that was a bit of a worry was that the, the next thing, the only other thing I should say that was a major during my three years there was, um, or two years, was um, the copyright licensing limited thing, which uh, the publishers, as you know, in the 19 80s had quite valiantly set up uh, an organisation um, to license um, the mass copying, multiple copying of, 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 at schools and universities um, of artists' work or writers' work. They had um, substantially set the organisation up and it had cost them a lot of money. I mean, the um, original uh, BPANZ executive secretary was Reed. Um, Gerard Reed. <coughs> Gerard Reed. <coughs> Pardon me, I'm probably. And, uh, 
he had he had travelled around the world and you know it cost them a lot of money and they'd set it up and and I think they came to the end of their resources. So they had this company. Gerard's plans stuff was just one of those people who never seemed to be able to bring anything to a conclusion. No, that's right. And, and in the end, Rosemary Stagg, um, who'd been chair of this organisation since it started, uh, had negotiated uh, with the universities, and the universities, uh, who didn't have to at that time, it was before the 1994 Copyright Act, which, which put them into the position of having to get a licence, they probably, well, they certainly saw it coming, so they decided they would organise a, uh, an arrangement with the, uh, a licensing arrangement with CLL in advance shrewdly I think to probably get a pretty good deal and they did and but it was good I mean they didn't have to do it so here we had the publishers um, owning this company in which they were representing authors rights and everywhere else in the world that I know of it was a joint operation if it, whether it was a company or whether it was a statutory organization it was owned or, or administered part half by authors and half by publishers because of all the licensing fees, half the money goes to publishers and half the money goes to authors. The attitude of the publishers was, I might add that Tony Harkins was extremely vociferous about this, um, that they had set it up and they had paid the money and that we had, to, we had not paid any money, which was true, and therefore we were not titled to any ownership and certainly were not entitled to half the ownership. So I went down to a guy called Bill the man working in the Justice Department at the time, his name escapes, second name escapes me now, and I talked to him about it at length, and uh, and I talked to Doug Graham about it, who didn't really want to know too much about it at all. Uh, and uh, the Justice Department people agreed that there had to be some compromise, there had to be some accommodation of authors in this arrangement, but what quite what it was, uh, they weren't prepared to say. I said that um, we... I wasn't quite sure myself how we could, we certainly couldn't afford to buy into it because a lot of money would have, it had cost him a lot of money to set up. So I took the attitude that no matter what else happened, we, we were entitled to half the ownership and that any arrangement, you know, because of the very nature of the organisation, because of the shape of them overseas, it was quite clear that we ha had an obligation, that, they, that we had a, uh, a right to half the ownership of the organisation. And I thought, well, we'll go for the half the ownership and we'll worry about the financial arrangements later. Um, in the end, the publishers fought it, fought it uh, very, very strongly. They really tried to repel us, and it was one of the toughest little campaigns I've ever run. And, it, and in the end, we went to... A, the only reason we won so easily in the end was because the Justice Department had a look at it and said, this is crazy, you have to. Um, and... Uh, the so in the end we won it without any cost at all. The publishers had decided. My attitude was that they had made this decision to do it. They had done it. We could, if we wanted to, because of the nature of the act, there's, uh, there's no uh, statutory protection for CLL that we could have set up our own if we'd needed to, as they have in England. They've got two organisations in England and a common one um, where they come together. So in the end, they realised that that. We, a, we were entitled to half the ownership of this organisation, and B, that if they didn't let us in, that we could do something else and we could go to another organisation. So it, it worked. So after a period of time, we went to a meeting in Wellington and they agreed that uh, we would be half shareholders in CLL. And that's where we are now. And it's now, of course, more than a million dollars a year. I'm chair of the, chairman of the company at the moment. Um,
it's not a mystery to me, but in the, <coughs> um, for some reason, Reeds, who only have about three of my books in print, send me checks that are five times the size of Penguin, who have about a dozen of my books in print, and I've never been able to work that out. But that, that's not for you to worry about now. Well, it is an interesting thing. I mean, it's a thing that's concerned me and Joan Rosier Jones as well. And we, every now and again, we go through the list to make sure that, you know, there are money, there is money. I mean, a lot of authors say they've, of books you would think would have been copied for educational purposes say they've never received a penny. Yeah. Um, so we, every now and again, we go through, probably once a year, I sort of go through them carefully and have a look at names to make sure authors are getting money. Because the system in New Zealand is such that the money all goes to the publishers and the obligation is for the publishers to pay the authors. Well, in other countries, of course, it's split at the beginning and by the organisation itself. Oh, and you think some publishers may not, be, not even be passing the house? Well, I don't know, but if there's any, ever any indication of that, um, we would take a very serious uh, action against the publishers. I don't think it happens. It doesn't seem to be happening. There are a couple of, of cases where publishers have not paid, have not collected the money which we're in pursuit of now, though, so that the author, I mean, if the publisher doesn't want the money, that's fine by me, but if he doesn't collect it, the author doesn't get it. So we were having, having a look at one of those, two of those at the moment, actually. So those are the two things I think that, uh, that I were the most um, interesting and, and effective and uh, historic, if you like, during my term of office. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but just to remind you that through advocacy, professional development programs, information, competitions, awards and mentorships, advisory and consultancy services, the NZSA is the professional organisation for New Zealand writers to receive fair reward and the right to protect their copyright. As a representative body, the NZSA lobbies for the rights of all writers in New Zealand. Visit authors.org.nz to find out more about membership. Now let's return to Gordon, who after battling for the rights of New Zealand authors found himself more and more interested in the rights and freedoms of writers throughout I the world. I went to the Penn Conference in Edinburgh because I was going to be in England, uh, Dawn and I were going to be in England uh, or Britain um, in 1997 I think it was, seven, um, yes I think it would have been, and then, yeah. Um, and I was quite fascinated by the whole procedure. I stayed there all week. I actually only intended to... to I was a delegate. Uh, New Zealand Society of made me a delegate. And uh, I was quite fascinated. And the, the thing that fascinated me more than anything else was the efforts on behalf of some countries for freedom of expression, particularly the Scandinavian countries. Um, I don't think many New Zealanders realise that probably the best, the freest expression or the laws which give its citizens freest expression in the world, not America, but Sweden. In Sweden, they, you can, and they, they always tell me over there, they got them by accident about 100 years ago. They, there was some kind of uh, situation that developed in government between the king and the government in which uh, they managed to get an act uh, through parliament, through their parliament, that uh, gave them almost total freedom of speech. I mean, it's almost impossible not to, to say what you like in Sweden. So the Swedes, the Norwegians and the Danes 
most of whom are multilingual, have this uh, great with great support from their governments, particularly the Swedish government, uh, go into bat for people who for writers who are jailed or suppressed in some way all around the world. Uh, they might hear about that. at the moment Turkey's their focus. Uh, another one at the moment is Peru. They know of a writer in Peru. He's just a Peruvian writer. He's a famous writer, a well-known and, and, and uh, established writer of fiction. Uh, they hear about him, so they they find they've got Spanish-speaking members there. They send a, they, under the auspices of international pen. They'll send this group, which will include other people as well, maybe a Spaniard or something, to Lima. Uh, the Swedish ambassador there will meet them at the airport and give them all the assistance, maybe go along and they'll interview the president and they've sprung quite a few people. And they've sprung a lot of Turks where there's a lot of writers in jail. And I was fascinated with this and I thought, well, you know, it's a, we're talking about global economies and, you know, the expansion of borders. Uh, what obligation do we have in New Zealand where we have a, you know, relatively high, apart from funny defamation, there was a relatively high level of freedom of speech. So, um, then I decided that the following year I would go to Helsinki in Finland because the meeting at my own expense, more or less. I think the Society of Authors paid for my registration. And again, I was. They had a here. They had people at these conferences. Who, I mean, you just cannot help but admire them enormously. They had a guy from Iran who'd been in jail for um, eight years, I think, and was going to go back because he had some particular problem that he was going to go back, and he was risking going to jail again. Uh, very uncongenial jails too, I might add. Um, so I talked to these people and I found them you know, heroes. I mean, these guys are absolutely heroes. I can say what I like about anybody in New Zealand. I can take the piss out of Helen Clark if I like. But these people, um, you know, they do these things at their great peril. And what intrigued me was that other countries and other people in these other countries, writers, were prepared to go to endanger their own positions for these people. And I, you know, in a, in a world of of uh, authoritarian governments and, and constraints on speech, I just thought this is a, a kind of thing that I, I admired so enormously that I would like to get involved in. So then I went to, at Helsinki, I, they were reforming PEN to make it a more effective and global organisation. It had always been very Eurocentric. And I uh, made a speech or two there about this and actually attacked the Europeans, who I find, the Eastern Europeans particularly, who, who are absolutely certain they have a mortgage on culture than anybody outside Europe is kind of a barbarian. And uh, so I got elected to the ad hoc committee, which was to reform the Constitution and Rules of Procedure of Penn. And I went to London, I went to Brussels, to meetings over there, and always on the shoestring. I think I paid for my trip myself, but International Pen has very little money. And again, I, it, it was an interesting, absolutely fascinating experience to sit in a committee with people who are culturally so divergent from yourself. It's just, I mean, I, I had a Slovenian um, called Boris, I'll think of his name in a moment, uh, with whom I had absolutely uh, um, a temperamental clash every time he sat down. I mean, he, <laughs> he, Boris Novak, and he was described to me once by an American as a hero at, in, in the Yugoslav, original Yugoslav war. And I said, I quite believe that. And I, I said to this woman, she still laughs, and takes the mickey out of me. I said to her, I quite believe that, um, Joanne. The world is full of heroes, but it's very short on common sense. <laughs> and uh, we can do without heroes. Um, but anyway, Boris in the end is self-destructed. Uh, and the thing that always amused me was uh, he was chairman of the Peace Committee. 
and he was the most provocative and angry and upset and, and sensitive person I've ever met. Um, and I kept saying to him, God, and when I went to these meetings... Bellicose pacifist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he, uh, every time we, we, we would sit down in committee, he would start rant at me, because I never lost my temper, and I used to keep saying, we're not talking about that, Boris, we're talking about this now, you see. Anyway, it was quite an interesting experience. And I also found that, I, you know, I understood quite rapidly why it is that mar armies have been marching over Europe for the last 2,000 years back and forth, because the, the, there is a very high degree of sens cultural sensitivity among these people. And you realise when you come home, when you go there, you realise how incredibly laid back New Zealanders are. I mean, it's very hard to buy a fight in New Zealand on religion or, or uh, politics, isn't it? A real fight, but it's very easy over there, I can tell you. You have to watch what you say. So um, then I went back to Russia this year. Um, I, um, I served a term of the year on the ad hoc committee, um, and then when it was all over, they elected a permanent committee. Um, and uh, so I went back to Russia this year, and again, I met two or three of these Russians who are just the most amazing people. A, a naval commander who, a major rather, in the, in the Navy who'd written a series of articles about the Russian Navy dumping nuclear waste in the Sea of Japan, which then, then took part in a documentary, television documentary, which was shown in Japan. Uh, he was charged with treason, slammed in, in, into jail, and. Uh, uh, it's a long story, but here's this guy, you know, medium height, 38, um, ordinary-looking joker, but standing up there and telling Putin in, in public and saying that Putin is a dangerous man, by the way. Um, is, Given uh, his background, it's not surprising. No, and uh, so I sort of go, I shake hands. I mean, you can you can you can have all your all-black captains. Uh, I I shake hands with these people, and I feel quite awed and honoured to be in their presence because they've got real guts. Now, what I my idea of it has been, and I hope to have time to do it, is that we have an obligation, I think New Zealand has an obligation in this part of the world to do the same kinds of thing that Scandinavians do, and that is we should make representations around the Pacific area where there is great pressure, we want to look what's happening in Fiji. And I might add that Chowdhury was a man who was not tolerant of the press. I'm not saying for a moment that that means that Spate's justified in anything, but uh, they do not understand that if you're going to have a civil society you have to have freedom of expression. And I think it's the job of New Zealanders and Australians in this whole region, including Indonesia, to make representations where you and I think it's the job of the New Zealand and Australian governments to give us support to do it. Not financial support or not uh, diplomatic support, just moral support. And in fact, I'm trying to persuade uh, pen this year, uh, Jenny Jones has actually put a paper up about it, I understand, I haven't seen it yet, that we should uh, have some, there's, there's supposed to be a pen meeting in Congress in Manila next year in April, and it's in danger at the moment because it's financially and administratively starting to fall apart, which is sad, but we're thinking of, uh, or I'm thinking of uh, persuading uh, Society of Authors to hold a meeting either in Auckland or Australia with the, with the Australian pen groups. Um, to form a strategy for forming pen groups in Suva, uh, Apia, uh, to start with, and maybe New Caledonia lad, uh, later, and maybe Tahiti. And uh, because I think that that would be our contribution to civil society in our region. That's one of the reasons I've kept in close, uh, in close touch with Penn. I also love the a lot of the people uh, who are so different from me in so many ways. I mean, uh, yeah, Mr. Patterson's and Michael Morrissey of this world. Well, yes, but there's also there's a marvellous man called Takashi Moriyama, who's executive secretary of the 
Japanese pen. And oh, sorry, you're talking about international people. I yeah. You, you know, oh, no, 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 no. No, I mean internationally. On, I better wipe that. I shouldn't have said that. I no, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. I'd, I'd, I'd endorse it. <laughs> um, this guy was born uh, before the war. His father was a diplomat. He was raised in Belgium. Belgium, and he then he after the war he became a civil servant for UNESCO, and he lived in Paris for 20 years. He's a very urbane, but incredibly hilarious and crazy uh, Japanese. He keeps saying to me, "You laugh at my jokes. The bloody Japanese never do." <coughs> and it, and his first language is, and he was having an argument with um, with an English author once, and he sent a long memo to me saying whether it was. He said, "Look, English is only my second uh, uh, foreign language, because he speaks and writes in French, um, but he speaks English, you know, very well. And um, and so I answered this question for him, and he tried to settle his argument. But anyhow, he's involved in this Manila thing. I said to Eric Lax once, if Takashi tells me it's fine outside, I take my coat, because <coughs> he's incredibly devious as well. But he. He, he was involved in this Manila thing, and I've been getting these hilarious emails. I mean, the one I got yesterday had, you know what the cap, the title of it was? Manila fuck up. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and one of them a while ago, he was having this terrible argument with the Swedish guy Terry, Terry Carbom, and he and he's, he said, um, Terry does not under, seem to understand how terrible we Japs are when aroused. He said, especially. And I, and I remind you, this is to me, especially I remind you, when we're dealing with our former colonials like New Zealanders and Australians and Philip <laughs> I mean, he's delirious. But, um, and he's a good friend and, you know, I've made quite a few other really very good friends like Eric Lax and uh, um, uh, uh, Edmund Keeley, Mike Keeley, and who's just, uh, he wrote that book, he's just been awarded another prize in America. For, it's a non-fiction book on, he's, a, he's married a Greek and he's, he spends all his uh, summers in Greek in Greece, and uh, he's written a book about um, uh, the Durrells and, and, yeah, and Miller and uh, that period during before the war. And he's a lovely man as well. So, and Jane Spender, the Administrative Secretary, they're all wonderful people. They're all hard-working, sincere people who are genuinely concerned about freedom of speech and freedom of expression around the world. So I, I found it a really challenging and liberating experience. been listening to Gordon McLaughlin and Michael King on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. If you like this podcast, please take a minute to like and subscribe or leave a review. It helps others find the NZSA. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod for the New Zealand Society of Authors with funding from Creative New Zealand. Notturno by Ottorino Respighi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. The audio was digitised and provided by the Alexander Turnbull Library. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. <laughs>